Hi, this is Raphael Pope-Sussman with the Center for Court Innovation, and today I'm speaking with John Chisholm, who has served as District Attorney for Milwaukee County in Wisconsin since 2007. Chisholm has attracted national attention for his work to reduce mass incarceration and racial inequities in the justice system. Recently, he was profiled by Jeffrey Tubin in The New Yorker. John, thank you for speaking with me today. Raphael, glad to be here. So when you were running for district attorney, were you thinking about how you would approach over-incarceration and racial imbalances in the justice system? You know, that's not what actually drove it initially. While I was running, uh, we were experiencing some deep unrest and dissatisfaction based on a fairly high-profile incident of uh, police misconduct involving the beating of an African-American citizen here in Milwaukee. And coming out of that, there was from my perspective, a need to reach out to the community and and engage them in their perceptions of whether or not they were treated fairly uh, in the system. Now, at the same time, I had been fortunately working with the Vera Institute in New York, where they had proposed earlier the concept of coming into our office and analyzing what we did on a daily basis and looking first and foremost at whether the issue of what we charged on on a daily basis was contributing to any disproportionality or disparity within the, the jail system or the prison system. And can you talk a bit about what they found? I certainly can. So they came in and their first finding was on the first hand positive in that they they found that at least on our initial review and issuance of cases that there was no discernible bias or disparity in our, our charge, no charge decisions. What they did find, however, and I think this um, it was not a surprise to a, a lot of the people that had been in the system for a significant amount of time, was that in certain categories of, of criminal offenses, there was um, fairly significant disparity. And the one that stood out the most was on the mid to lower level drug offenses. And that certainly was matched by the disparity in the state prison system. And where did that disparity come from? Well, one of the first things they identified is that one of our lowest level offenses, something that we call possession of drug paraphernalia, which was one of the lowest classes of of misdemeanor, um, had one of the highest disparity rates. And and as we started analyzing it, they said, look, it doesn't look like there's any apparent bias, but what we found is that our least experienced prosecutors were reviewing the cases. Oftentimes, the individuals who were drug addicted had multiple, multiple misdemeanor and sometimes even felony drug-related cases, and what what you were finding is that, you know, the initial reviewer would simply say, look, the, the guy's got a terrible record. I almost can't justify not charging it, even though I know it's a, a relatively minor offense. And, you know, when you brought the senior people in, they were like, why do we even charge these cases? I mean, uh, people that are... are are caught with drug paraphernalia are drug users and and drug users uh, would be better off getting treatment than you know spending five ten fifteen days in jail and that's you know just one example that I could give you that the data actually allowed us to step back from it and say well maybe maybe there could be a policy change that says that you know our first inclination would be on a low level case like this that we'd we'd rather divert that person into a treatment program. That's just one example of of how we started analyzing cases. And from that moment on, what what we did is we invited other institutions and and academic uh, entities to come in and and assist us. So you brought experts in who um, gave you, you know, effective tools that you could use to identify the risks that individuals posed when they were brought into the system and what their needs were. And then the next step was to 
uh, talk to community stakeholders and uh, system professionals and say, look, can't we uh, develop a system that would allow us to identify those people that we really think need a full system response? That would certainly be violent offenders, sex offenders, gun offenders, individuals that pose an immediate risk to the community. The, the, um, the next group, however, are those individuals that are coming in for a host of different reasons. Often drug addiction is involved, mental illness is involved, uh, you have a significant population of, of co-occurring disorders and you have uh, youthful offenders, you have the, uh, the alcohol addicted offenders. Those are a body or a population that, that really represents a significant number of the people that come in. They don't have histories of violence, and, and let me make it perfectly clear. One of the one of the benefits of this approach right here is that we absolutely have an obligation to protect public safety, but we've always always made this distinction between people that are coming into the system um, with multiple lower level lower risk offenses that, that just chew up an enormous amount of the system's resources and generally get bad results at the end. You know, that doesn't stop the person from once they're released from their jail or their short prison sentence coming back out and engaging in the same behavior. What we wanted to do instead is is identify ways that early on we could we could connect those individuals with the resources in a structured and accountable way um, that incentivized them getting that, that help they needed to change those behaviors that led to repeat contacts with the system and would allow them to stabilize their lives and the lives of the people that they were responsible for in the community. And then that would free us up uh, in, the, in the criminal justice system to deal with the more serious cases in some fashion. So that, that was one of the, the benefits. So when we developed a community justice council, we um, immediately set up a, a number of systems in our, in, our, um, in our office and in the court system and the public defender's office within the Department of Corrections, even with the police department, to start figuring out ways that we could um, either divert or uh, expand deferred prosecutions if you needed longer longer control over the person. And for the riskiest people that were truly drug addicted, we, we needed to develop a, a full, full treatment regimen, which was the drug treatment court, which by the way, we did not have when I started this process in 2007. It didn't, uh, but because of this process, we could make a rational argument for it and we could tie it to the issue of reducing uh, disparity in our jail and our prison system. Going back to this issue of violent offenders versus nonviolent offenders, there are a huge number of violent offenders in state prisons. And a lot of the conversation about reducing incarceration does seem to focus on drug offenders and other nonviolent offenders. So I'm wondering if you think that changing how we treat some violent offenders, is that something that should be part of the conversation? Oh, of course. So, so here's here's the benefit of engaging in this process, in my view, and, and that is, um, first and foremost, um, even though this sounds like a system response, um, I believe strongly the prosecutors also have an obligation to solve problems in the actual community itself. So, I also have as a, a core component of my office a, a community-based prosecution unit. Their job is to identify the problems um, in the most crime-impacted neighborhoods and help those neighborhoods solve those problems proactively um, and to minimize the overuse of, of law enforcement systems to, to deal with, with those problems. So when you start looking at it from you know, what is often described as more of a public health perspective, then one example of what you find talking about violent offenders is you find that, for example, children who are exposed to violence tend to have a, a disproportionate risk for being victims of violence or being perpetrators of violence once they are adults. 
And so uh, one of the things that if you, if you start taking this approach of, of analyzing risk factors, you can start intervening much earlier in the system and you can come up with different responses that are aimed specifically at preventing people from continuing in a, in a lifestyle where, where they're exposed to trauma and violence and then eventually harm other people because of those experiences. So, so the approach itself leads you to start examining why people in certain environments, given certain constraints, certain pressures, uh, make certain decisions that are oftentimes really, really um, not, not just harmful to the community and to the, the victims, but oftentimes uh, um, harmful to themselves. And once you can put systems in place to address that, um, you, you will start impacting, in my view, the, the violent offenders as well. What is the specific mandate of those community prosecutors? Their job is to help that community develop the capacity to maintain their, their own social social controls in, in their specific neighborhood. So it's obviously to reduce crime. It's to, it's really the, the aspiration is that you just turn big cities into uh, small towns uh, where everybody knows each other and, and takes care of the problems to their to, to the ability they can at the lowest level they can. And, and then they know when they have a problem that they, they can't handle, that's when they get a hold of us and we can respond more appropriately. It's much better than, for example, just having, having you know, large suppression-based strategies where you just roll in with large numbers of police to try to quell a problem after it's spun out of control. So jumping out 40,000 feet, what is the greatest obstacle to change in the justice system? Oftentimes it's, it's the constant flow of, of challenging work that comes in every single day and um, you're often under-resourced. You still have an obligation to represent the state in courtrooms and my people are incredibly busy. Um, it's you know the work has gotten more complicated, and the resources have, have become uh, fewer and fewer. Thank you so much for talking to me. Well, I'm happy to do it. It's an absolute privilege. Um, from a prosecutor's perspective, you know we, we're more than just case processors. We have an obligation to try to help so solve some of these problems. <clears throat> I'll just finish by saying that I, I don't have all the answers, and some things, uh, you know, we're we're undergoing a, a period of um, some extraordinary violence in our in our city right now. You know, we had, we had made tremendous progress uh, over the last eight years on addressing that that issue, and now we're going through a spike in violence. But what I can say is I'm glad that we have the infrastructure in place right now so we can do our best to respond to it in a rational way as opposed to um, what we've done in the past, which which is, you know, just to have kind of broad swipe approaches to trying to deal with it that are often not particularly effective. So, yeah, the, the challenges never cease, and, um, you know, I, I don't want to pretend that I have all the answers because um, I don't, uh, and I'm always open to working with and, and um, understanding more, um, particularly with some of the innovative work that's being done around the country. This has been Raphael Pope-Sussman with the Center for Court Innovation, speaking with John Chisholm, District Attorney for Milwaukee County in Wisconsin. For more information on the Center for Court Innovation, visit www.courtinnovation.org.